From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org holiness. I was listening this morning, less than six hours ago. Actually, I was watching as well a video posted on the internet by Major Cameron Henderson. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about Major Henderson. He is responsible, among other things, or was responsible for the Florida Divisional Holiness Center ministry. And I am an instructor as part of that ministry. Major Henderson has personally overseen the production and management of the Holiness Podcast from its inception over the past 18 months. Certainly, he has been the glue for this podcast ministry, at least in my participation. He is my audience when I record these podcasts, and he is the technician when I record the podcast every month. And most importantly, he's a wonderful sense and source uh, of inspiration and encouragement in pursuing a holy life. Uh, This is the opportunity I have to say thank you to Major Henderson for all he has done in making this podcast a reality. He has received his uh, orders to go to a new appointment, and I'll be saying more about that in just a moment. I also want to thank Lieutenant Colonel Ken Like who had the vision for this podcast and is responsible for approving its existence. I want to acknowledge, because we've never done this before, at least uh, during the podcast itself, uh, Mr. Chris Benjamin at the Territorial Headquarters, who is the Director of Soundcast Ministries and responsible for the final production and marketing of uh, the Holiness Podcast. I want to say a word of welcome and express my anticipation to work with Major Henry Morris, who is taking Major Henderson's place. And uh, beginning next month, I'll look forward very much to recording and working with Major Morris. And today, my thanks to Sydney here in Port Charlotte, my home uh, core, where he is uh, serving as the technician and recording this so that I don't have to travel very far from home. So thank you to Sydney today. Now, Major Henderson has moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, just a couple of weeks ago, and has new responsibilities, both as a pastor and as an administrator of the work of the Salvation Army in the greater Knoxville community. But I am not surprised that his first sharing of his own devotional thoughts, which he does every once in a while on the internet, since he relocated to Knoxville, turned out to be a perfect introduction to today's podcast. This morning, as I listened and watched him, he began with the opening words of the psalmist in Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, are you so far away? 
Where are you? Then he takes about 10 minutes touching upon two themes, or this theme, actually, as he reviews bits of Psalms 10 through 18. For example, in Psalms 13, which begins, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That theme of God at a distance repeats itself throughout the Psalms. And as Major Henderson commented on that, he saw the question, but he also found the answer. The question was poised in Psalm 15, which begins, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live in your holy hill? Notice the words dwell and live. We're not talking about a single event. We're talking about where we live and dwell. And the answer comes immediately in Psalm 15. He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, verse 2 says. And the next three verses complete the description of the person who may dwell and live in the presence of God, and it is only the one who is holy. Verse 5's closing statement of the psalm, short psalm it is, says, He who does these things will never be shaken. Our topic today is holiness as communion with God. One of the key reasons for this podcast and the importance of teaching scriptural holiness is the stark misunderstanding in our society among Christians, certainly in our world, about what it means to be a Christian. So many people call themselves Christians, thinking of it in terms only of what they believe And they relate their Christian faith simply to making a decision to believe in Jesus. The call to discipleship and to a living daily experience with God and a God-shaped life with a living Jesus Christ is tragically unknown to millions of people who call themselves Christians. And it is the doctrine of holiness, which is replete throughout the Bible, that teaches us that God's intention is to be in communion with him on an ongoing, always basis. I want to use a definition of holiness, and we have used several of them throughout these podcasts. It is such a rich term There is no one definition that completes uh, the spectrum of all that is taught. But one of the definitions we used earlier that is a favorite of mine is that holiness is a living, dynamic, obedient relationship with God the Holy Spirit who resides in me. You see, New Testament Christians experience the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, as the moving, controlling, upholding power for everyday life and everyday action. 
Holiness centers upon the Holy Spirit living within us. One of the great themes we'll explore in the near future is that it includes the restoration of our relationship with God. Back to where God walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. In this podcast, we're going to look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we want to look at two symbols of holiness that stand for the privilege of God's people to be in communion with him. And in the New Testament, we want to look at the revelation of the power of shared life with Christ, of holy living by the power of the Holy Spirit, and of being in communion with God. I want us to reflect a moment on symbols. Symbols are powerful. It didn't take me long as a father to learn the power of the golden arches for even a three- or four-year-old child. Those golden arches seem to reach out and grab completely their attention. Everything else disappears. And all that's on their minds is McDonald's. A symbol can be tiny but powerful. This is how I describe it. So if you're involved in the uh, designer t-shirt industry, don't get upset at me. Take a good quality cotton t-shirt, nothing special, a solid color, and then put a tiny little symbol on it and triple the price. Symbols are powerful. The Olympic torch and flame will forever be symbols of the summer of 1996 for Atlanta, Georgia, those five rings. We happened to be living in Atlanta when the Olympics was held there that year. For my generation, along with the American flag, there's another symbol. It's a black marble monument called the Vietnam Memorial. Having served in the height of the war in the United States Marine Corps when I visit, which I have twice now, the Vietnam Memorial, I go looking for names. For Stokely Jones, the oldest son of wonderful Salvation Army officer friends who are now in heaven with him because Stokely lost his life in Vietnam. I look for Jan Roshkolb from Greeley, Colorado. He was our platoon honor man, and his name is there. I look for Bill Emerson and Eddie Simmons. I did look the first time I was there, and my heart was encouraged when their names were not to be found. But you see, symbols are only the representation, the picture. It's the underlying reality of the symbols that matters. In other words, don't give me the golden arches, my kids say. Give me the real thing, a Big Mac. Remember Paul's teachings about the symbols, festivals, the new moon celebration or the Sabbath day? 
or what you eat and drink in Colossians 2.17? He said, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I want to talk about two symbols. For those who are in the Salvation Army as their church home listening, you will be familiar with these. For those uh, who are not in the Salvation Army, let me introduce them to you. We don't have a lot of liturgy in the Salvation Army, but we do have our symbols. We have some that relate directly to our name as an army. And so we carry a flag and we have a crest. There are some, however, that are directly related, some symbols directly related to the Bible and its primary teaching you will find in almost any Salvation Army center of worship. The first is the holiness table. The holiness table has at the source of its meaning, the Old Testament tabernacle. With its rich symbolism, God's house was to be the dwelling place of his holiness in the Old Testament, the place where he was to reveal himself as the Holy One. The center of the revelation of his holy and holy-making presence is found in the person of the high priest, who has that amazing double responsibility and capacity of representing God with man and representing man with God. In him, God came near to sanctify and bless the people. In him, the people came their very nearest to God. I want to read from Exodus chapter 28, verses 26 to 38. This is the NIV. Make a plate of pure gold. These are the instructions, as an aside, being given about the priestly garments for the high priest. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, holiness unto the Lord, or holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead. And he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they, that means the people, will be acceptable to the Lord. Holy unto the Lord on the forehead of the high priest as a sign that it's there for us, that it's there for the people to remind us that we are acceptable to God. So the scripture explains to us that holy unto the Lord is for the worshiper. Because like you and me, the Israelites who came to worship God who they knew was holy and righteous and good, and who they knew themselves were unworthy, probably felt like Isaiah when he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and among a people of unclean lips. I can imagine how painful the worshiper 
might feel even oppressed by the consciousness that his faith, his penitence, his love, his obedience were all imperfect and defiled. Can you relate to that? I certainly can. But the Old Testament Israelites who came to worship knew that God had provided for that reality. The holiness of the high priest covered the sin and the unholiness of his holy things. The holy crown was God's pledge that the holiness of the high priest rendered the worshipers acceptable. You see, if the worshipers were unholy, there was one who was holy, who had a holiness that could avail for them too, a holiness in which they could trust. Conscious of personal unholiness, the worshiper might rejoice in a mediator, in the holiness of another than himself, the chief priest whom God had provided. Oh, and you know where we're going with that. The Bible said there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Let me read Hebrews. Might take me just a second to pull it up here. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Now listen. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The reason for our symbol, holiness unto the Lord. And in the Salvation Army, when you go into a place of worship, you will see a table that has a covering, and in the front of it, those words, holiness unto the Lord. That symbol reminds us that we can enter the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that, we teach that. I think in our minds we understand that. We sing about it in that great hymn. To God be the glory, we sing, O come to the Father through Jesus the Son. What a wonderful symbol of the presence of God and the acceptability of ourselves through the blood of Christ. There's a second symbol. There is what serves as a kind of altar, a place we can kneel in every Salvation Army place of worship. Traditionally, 
It has been called, even back in the earliest days of the army, it has been called the mercy seat. And to understand the mercy seat, we have to understand what it was in the tabernacle. The mercy seat formed a covering for the ark. It was made of solid gold and was perhaps the most important part of the tabernacle. The word mercy seat means covering. It not only served as a covering for the ark itself, but covered the sacred treasure that were uh, treasures that were deposited in the ark. It included the tablets, the Ten Commandments. It included Moses' rod and some manna. Now on the mercy seat, there were two cherubims beaten out of solid gold. Their wings extended over the mercy seat and their faces turned down upon it. So it was the covering for the ark. Now it served two important purposes. First, the mercy seat was a place of forgiveness. It was on the day of atonement once a year that the high priest went into the most holy place with the blood of the sin offering and sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. Leviticus 16, 14 says, And he shall take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then thus the sprinkled blood upon the mercy seat made a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So we have salvation by substitution. You may know of the wonderful teaching of Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that Christ is our sacrifice of atonement. Now that's the translation in most of the new modern uh, critical translations. It, the word that's used there can be translated mercy seat. That's exactly what it says. And what the mercy seat did symbolically for sinning Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ has done fully and perfectly for those who by faith accept his atoning work on the cross. Christ is our mercy seat. The mercy seat proclaims in a symbol or picture or type that our transgressions are forgiven. Our sin is covered. Don't you love that thought? I love to sing about that. One of my favorite songs is It Is Well With My Soul. There are multiple verses. We have four printed in our Salvation Army hymnal or songbook. This one, my favorite, is not printed. But this is what it says. My sin. Oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. So the mercy seat where people in the Salvation Army come forward to kneel is the place of forgiveness. More importantly for our study today, the mercy seat was also a place of communion. 
The mercy seat is the place where God met man. It was from the mercy seat God spoke to Moses. There will I meet with thee. I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. It was here that God made known to Moses his will concerning Israel. It was here he revealed his love, his grace, his holiness, his majesty. You see, this is the meaning of the mercy seat. As it sits in Salvation Army places of worship, I can see it in my mind out in the rural areas of Kenya as we gathered together in a little Salvation Army village community hall. I can see it in my mind as we were part of the opening of a new Salvation Army Corps right on the border of Romania and Moldova. I can see it in my mind as I went to the core in the inner parts of Kingston, Jamaica. I can see it as it sat in the middle of this open building. No walls, just the studs that held it up, mostly concrete, that we walked to about half a mile through the farmland of Sri Lanka with uh, Bill and Deborah Maccabee, our wonderful friends, when they were stationed there. Everywhere you find the Salvation Army, you will find a mercy seat. I know that because General Eva Burroughs was questioned about what she saw in her travels around the world that were the same. You see the Salvation Army is in uh, almost 130 countries. What was the same in the army everywhere? Well, I was sitting right in front of her when she answered the question. She said there were three things, but the only one I remember is the mercy seat. In fact, I always remember the story of the architect who was asked to design a core building, which is the Salvation Army Church in Canada, He acted on the captain's remark that the mercy seat is the center of our worship. And so he designed a chapel in the round with the mercy seat in the center, no matter where you sat. How our lives and service and worship will be enriched as we realize the reality behind this symbol that this is what we're all about. The living God meets with men and women and boys and girls through Jesus Christ. Millions of Christians who have no concept of communion with Christ would be reminded of the meaning of the mercy seat. God wants to meet with us, be with us, live with us. This is our message. This is our purpose. The mercy seat is a constant, ever-present reminder that every person is made for fellowship and communion with God, that every person needs to meet with Him, be restored in relationship to Him, 
and discover the purpose for their lives. This is why we tell the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus to people who don't know him. I don't think it's changed for Christians, certainly salvationists in our history, when we see people who matter to God poking around the garbage heaps of life for meaning, when we see them dashing from bar to bar, from lover to lover, from toy to toy, from fun fix to fun fix, when we see them repeatedly turned down dead-end streets, we want to stop and shout, Stop your endless searching. Stop picking at refuse piles. Experience the love and grace and mercy of God. The stockpile from, of his blessing is waiting to spill over into your life. You can meet him. You can know him through Jesus. What a wonderful symbol. Speaking to those who may be Salvation Army soldiers or officers, what a wonderful symbol. You'll see it several times a week, <laughs> no matter your appointment. The mercy seat awaits your arrival when you come into church. It will always be there beckoning for you to meet God himself. It represents the shed blood of Jesus to you. Sinners no longer are commanded to keep their distance in fear and trembling. They are Invited to draw near. Okay, that's how we've been reminded of these two symbols and their meaning. Let's let our New Testament text now speak to us. I happen to believe, along with I think a majority of Bible scholars and students, that I have found that the writer of the Hebrews was thinking of the mercy seat the Holy of Holies, when he wrote these words. And our New Testament text is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Listen to the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You remember our definition of holiness? A dynamic, obedient relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, who resides in us. I want us to see the connection between the mercy seat in the Old Testament and the red carpet to the throne of Jesus, which is available to Christians and is taught in this text. Now, verse 14, where we began to read, you heard the writer making a contrast between the high priest of the Jewish religion of that day and Christ as the high priest of the Christian faith. The Jewish high priest passed from
from the holy place in the temple to the holy of holies once a year on the day of atonement for the sins of the people. This had to be repeated every year. But Christ as high priest of those who trust in him passed through the heavens once and for all to pioneer a place of pardon for the sin of the world. His triumph never has to be repeated. The mercy seat remains for all time. I'm thinking of my own life. How far away do I feel divine help is when I urgently need it? How available is it? How long does it take to come? Questions like these persist when we pray to God in a desperate need and nothing seems to happen. Maybe you're there today. A crucial decision we have to make. A fierce temptation that is upon us. Or a sharp disappointment that eats the heart out of us. Maybe a lingering illness that resists diagnosis. A burden that's getting too heavy. You see, when heaven doesn't seem to hear and we begin to wonder whether he's really there, you remember how we started with Major Henderson saying, God, where are you? Then this promise comes to us. There are three wonderful assurances in these three verses in Hebrews chapter 4. The first is, he sustains our faith. Our exalted Lord encourages in us a righteous and victorious faith. Listen to the writer. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast, hold firmly, the NIV, which I read said, to our confession. That is a confession of faith, not a confession of sin. John Calvin says, because of the victory of Christ, we have no reason to doubt or to waver in the faith of the gospel, which the Son of God has approved and ratified. That's the conclusion of the Hebrews writer. Cling for dear life to your faith in Christ. Never let it go. The words hold fast. Our favorite words in the New Testament about faith in God through Christ. Hold fast to your faith at all costs. He has promised to take you with him at your life's end. Why let go of that marvelous prospect? Hold fast to your faith no matter what. So he sustains our faith. What a wonderful assurance. He does that as we live with him. It is an ongoing, everyday experience. We live in communion with God. The second great assurance is in verse 15. I imagine you heard that and picked up on it. He understands our struggles. Ponder what is written there. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. 
I read this newspaper account a few years ago. Some of you who are old enough will recall the circumstances of that time. Here is a brilliant young executive sitting in a comfortable office high atop a New York City skyscraper. How could that executive, couched in all his opulence, possibly understand what those Kurdish refugees went through after the Middle East War with Iraq. They were frozen with cold, starving without food, thirsty without water, dying without medicine, living without hope. In his lofty executive tower, how could he possibly understand what they went through? Why? because he was among them as one of them. He was one of the U.S. military reservists, alleviating their plight atop the forbidding winter snows of those Turkish mountains. He sloshed through the mud with them, suffered dangers of frostbite with them, distributed food to them, endangered his life with exposure to epidemics among them, and finally helped carry some of them the aged and some children back down the mountain toward their homes in the resettlement in Iraq. Now he is back in the executive office high above the city. But don't think for a minute that corporation officer could not sympathize with what those Kurds were going through then how much more must the Lord Jesus Christ, having slogged through our bitterest disappointments and trials on earth himself, be able to remember and sympathize with us in our struggles? When the letter to the Hebrews testifies that Christ in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin, this is the clearest statement of that truth in the whole New Testament. One might think that because Jesus was divine in nature, he had no struggle to resist temptation. It was automatic for him. He wore a divine temptation-proof vest. He could not sin. Ah, quite the contrary. This same letter to the Hebrews speaks of Jesus' loud cries and tears on earth. In Gethsemane, he sweat blood in resisting the temptation to escape the cross. In his wilderness temptation, he weakened himself indescribably in resisting the devil. Jesus had to be on guard every minute of his life to avoid succumbing even once to the devil's subtle temptations. Jesus lived his whole life in a fierce wrestling with Satan's craftiest wiles, all for our sake, that he might be our Savior and deliver us from sin's awful consequences. What an assurance as we live in a dynamic relationship with him every day, he understands our struggles. So he sustains our faith. He understands our struggles. Here's our last assurance. And what may tie all of this together for some of you? 
He invites us to the throne of grace. Our gracious Lord bids us boldly approach his throne of grace. And he says, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Note that this is a throne of grace for a believer. This is not a throne of judgment anymore. If you look at the verses immediately preceding these in Hebrews 4, you'll see a description of the divine theme of judgment. But that's been transformed for the believer into mercy. Friends, the throne of grace will never be toppled. It was only four years ago on vacation we had the thrill of making one of Martha's dreams come true. We visited and hiked among the giant redwood trees in Northern California in the National Redwood Forest Park. Just a few years earlier, one giant redwood tree, the fourth, fourth tallest tree in the world, which had stood for an estimated 1,600 years in the grove of California redwoods, was toppled in a rainstorm. Friends, everything on earth will eventually be toppled. But God's throne of grace will never be toppled. It is far above all earthly movements. It is from everlasting to everlasting and a welcome sign with your name on it, affixed to that throne, so to speak. Take heart. God rolled out his red carpet for you from his throne of grace. This carpet is red from the blood of Christ, shed for you on Calvary's cross. He died so that you might have immediate and eternal access to the throne of grace, Use that carpet often. Cover it with your footprints. Divine love saturates the pile of that carpet. Come boldly to that throne in Jesus' name. From that heavenly throne, mercy flows to every repentant sinner pleading God's merits day in and day out. It's always open for business. Willie Sutton, the legendary bank robber of many years ago, was once asked why he robbed banks. Because that's where the money is, he replied. <laughs> why go to the throne of grace in prayer? Because that's where the mercy is. I happen to love the history of Bibles. In 1638, a Bible was printed that has become known as the Forgotten Sins Bible. In it, Luke 7:47 reads, Her sins, which are many, are forgotten. The printer should have used the word forgiven. Actually, when God forgives, sins are both forgiven and forgotten forever. What a mercy seat God owns. Now, here's the promise for today. Christ is our mercy seat. We have a red carpet to the throne of grace 
where we receive mercy and grace and strength. All the help that any believer could ever use in any trial or sorrow is freely available from the throne of grace. The life of holiness and living communion with Christ every day through his spirit is available to you, to me, to all of us. When you're neck deep in trouble, take heart from that heavenly throne of grace. The resources of love available to you from that point of mercy are more than you could ever use. Maybe you need to make a mercy seat where you are right now. I love the song sometimes called the Mercy Seat Hymn. It's written by Henry Edward, Edward Henry Joy, who was a British Salvation Army officer for all of his life uh, as an adult. And the words are sung in churches of many denominations all around the world. The chorus reads, all your anxiety, all your care, bring to the mercy seat, leave it there. Never a burden he cannot bear, never a friend like Jesus. The life of communion with God, the holy life, is available to you and to me. Praise God for that. So ends our study today. I will look forward to being with you again next month, where maybe we'll have a chance to introduce Major Henry Morris, uh, who will be working directly with the podcast from now on. The Lord bless you and be with you, and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts.